Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 54 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Our captive owner interview this time is with Kevin Steed, Director of Group Insurance at pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca, a fascinating interview. And Kevin speaks at length about the multinational's long and varied captive history and the comprehensive structured reinsurance program they have in place today. And in the second half of the episode, we have the Q2 investments update from our friends at London and Capital. But first, let's introduce our guest co-host of the episode. And it's a welcome return for the pod for Dan Toll, president of Seeker, the Captive Insurance Companies Association. Dan, welcome back to the uh, back to the pod. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. And thank you for having me back on the pod. I, I wish we were doing this across from, I was going to say a conference room table, but perhaps a bar stool or two, but yeah. uh, but it's uh, these are the times we're in. And uh, I guess I'm a little more concerned about how you're doing after the recent uh, England not winning the European Championship after being heavily favored to do so. Hopefully uh, you're doing okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a tough week. I'll say that I wasn't particularly productive on Mondays. As you know, uh, I am a huge uh, football fan. And yeah, it, uh, football isn't coming home this time, I'm afraid. Uh, but yeah, we gave it a good shot. It was our best performance since 1966. Extremely proud of all the players. And yeah, maybe maybe in four years' time or in, in 18 months in Qatar, maybe it'll be it'll be England's turn. But uh, tough one to take, but congratulations to, uh, to my Italian friends and contacts in the captive industry. So Dan, I've been looking back, looking you know forward to having you back on the pod for, for quite a while. And after the excellent news at Seeker, you know, talking about football fans returning to stadiums, Seeker will be returning to an in-person full forum in Tucson, Arizona, uh, October tenth to thirteenth. I thought there was no better time to have you back on now. So Dan, first of all, I guess how happy and excited are you about about Seeker coming back in person, and how did it come about, and and why did you decide to add it to the uh, the calendar this fall? Well, we are incredibly excited to host this conference in person. Uh, I think first and foremost, the industry needs to get together in person. Uh, Our members keep telling us they are so burnt out on Zoom calls and virtual conferences. And, uh, you know, we need to come together to celebrate our success. It's been an incredible time for the captive industry. And uh, I think uh, the virtual events only can do so much for you. I think when we get together, we share best practices we share our success and make our industry stronger by doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree that it's going to be great to be in person. I've got my fingers crossed that uh, the Brits will be allowed into America by October. I'm planning to come to Sika and then uh, spend a few weeks in the States and then go to the Hawaii conference as well. Obviously, Vermont and Cayman have had to uh, kind of stay virtual this year for, for various reasons. What can um, delegates expect then from, from this new uh, full forum, Dan? Well, first, I, I think we have an opportunity to be the largest in-person captive gathering this year. And that's exciting. And again, from the feedback we've gotten from our members and others in the, the captive industry, I, I expect we're going to have a huge turnout. Um, first and foremost, this is not a reschedule of our annual conference. That's still on for March. Uh, we're doing things a little different. We're actually going to have more concentrated education sessions. The sessions are, are only going to be 45 minutes long. 
and that's going to leave more time for for networking uh, and some of the in-person meetings that people want to have scheduled. So I think it's I think that's going to be very positive, but it's going to have the top-notch education in a domicile neutral environment that only SICA can provide. So I think again, it's going to be uh, an exciting time. I expect a, a huge turnout. Uh, we've gotten extremely positive feedback from from our sponsors and exhibitors and and, and members. And uh, again, I think it's going to be the event of the year. And I, I hope we uh, hope many of the listeners are going to be there to enjoy it with us yeah for sure we'll certainly be doing our bit to promote it uh through our for our channels and i'll put links etc in in the episode description i imagine as well dan even even without the disruption of the pandemic and and the pandemic's impact on insurance market to a degree i imagine there's quite a degree of frustration isn't there of not being able to meet in person for the past 18 months you know i certainly feel it this side not doing these interviews in person because because captives have been so much back in the fashion back in vogue because of the hard market, which kind of predated the pandemic, you know, captives have never been higher on the on the corporate agenda. Absolutely. Uh, captive insurance companies have an incredible opportunity to showcase their value to their parent companies and to educate the broader industry about their benefit. And, you know, the industry's booming. Uh, many of the members we speak to have had some of the best years they've ever had um, with growth and with, with helping their companies. And again, in many cases, the captive has been at the forefront of dealing with the pandemic and the hard market for their parent companies. And, and one of the ways that we can share that good news and share it with the broader market is having things like in-person conferences where risk managers can share their story and talk about the best practices and things that they do that make their captive so valuable to their organization. And uh, again, we're, we're super excited for this event. So uh, you mentioned, Dan, that this the full forum in October isn't replacing the, the March International Conference. So is, what's the plan longer term? Is the plan, do you think, to have both events, to have a full forum and to have a March International Conference? I certainly think it's something we'll evaluate. Um, many of our members, we used to have a fall forum that was more uh, focused on advocacy. And I think it was always in Washington, D.C. in the past. That was a one-day event. Uh, I think, again, if our members enjoy it and the numbers look good, I think it's very possible we will make this uh, an annual event. We might do it as a members-only event. Uh, we don't want it to compete with our annual conference. We want it to supplement our annual conference. And, and I think it will do that. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting in part because of all the conditions and all, so many other conferences having unfortunately to go virtual, I think we will have uh, great turnout. And then we'll have to look to the future to see if we continue to keep it on our, uh, on our plans or not. Okay, well, looking forward to it. And we'll hear more from Dan and we'll hear from London and Capital in the second half of the episode as well. But first, let's turn to our captive owner interview with Kevin Steed, Director of Group Insurance at AstraZeneca. AZ has a Cayman domiciled captive, which Kevin discusses at length, but he begins by telling us about his background and current role at AstraZeneca. So post-chemistry degree, I took a role in chemical manufacturing and, and R&D. Uh, and it was during that time uh, I became the, the health and safety environmental lead. And that position really created my entry into AstraZeneca 19 years ago. So I joined AZ as a manufacturing health and safety professional, uh, got interested in site risk management and then UK risk management. And like many people, uh, the law of risk management kind of won in the end, and I took a role supporting insurance. But that was initially on supply chain risk. And from there, I was, I was really hooked. 
um, joining the team, took on various projects within insurance, moved through the ranks to my current position as director group insurance. So the role is, is really quite broad. It spans a global remit, responsible for all insurances relating to what we call core business risks. It involves um, defining the strategy, the implementation, and the ongoing management uh, through our, our various key service partners and reinsurers, and of course, internal functions within AZ. Spent a fair amount of time over the past 14 years simplifying our processes. And whilst the remit is global, we have 15 lines of risk. We're operating in 100 plus countries, and the team is relatively small. Uh, there are just the three of us, myself, Jennifer Cowling, and Richard Gavin. Um, additionally, within the role, I take the position of chairman and president in our two captives. Fantastic. Yeah, really interested to hear that kind of uh, non-insurance background, as, as you know, is so common uh, with lots of people that come onto, onto the podcast and then heavily involved with uh, commercial insurance and, and captives. Um, and you mentioned the, the strategy there, uh, Kevin, you touched upon it. How long has AstraZeneca had a kind of a captive strategy in place? And, and you mentioned the two captives, where are they domiciled? And obviously, you write a lot of lines of insurance by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of AstraZeneca, uh, we've had a captive strategy from the very beginning. Uh, when I say the very beginning, if we can actually trace back our involvement with internal insurance companies back to ICI in the 1920s. Uh, admittedly, an awful lot has changed uh, since then. Uh, as part of the AZ captive structure, uh, it's very much a, a streamlined structure now. And we've just got two captives. Our main captive, AZ Reinsurance Limited, uh, benefits from a dual domicile. So it's Cayman and UK based. And it has around 14 different risks flowing through it from direct, reinsured and fronted. For a majority of the risks, the captive issues a full limit policy and then it maintains reinsurance to offset that risk. For others, like employee benefits, it just acts as a reinsurer. Uh, through this captive, we have a wide range of risks. It's from your normal property um, lines. We've got business interruption, various types of liability, cyber, uh, corporate indemnification, DNO, transit, trade credit, motor, employee benefits, US risks. Um, so there's quite a variety. We've got a second captive. AZ Mont Insurance Company is based in Vermont and is only involved with US employee risk benefits. And that's very much a decision that we've made. Yeah, quite common, uh, particularly for those kind of dual cap strategies for that US one to take care of. Uh, the two ones are often the US employee benefits, as you say, and also some captives also access the TRIA uh, terrorism backstop, which you need to you need to be in the US to do that. You mentioned all those lines of insurance, uh, Kevin, and, and you and I have spoken quite recently uh, outside of the podcast about uh, structured reinsurance, which you do make good use of and have done for quite some time. Could you perhaps give us a, a brief kind of one-on-one on, on and why you use disrupted reinsurance approach and, and how you measure its success? I think as a major pharmaceutical company, we operate very stringent processes. And from that, we really do have a great attitude to risk management and loss prevention. And therefore, I believe you know, we are a very good risk. 
which really makes structured reinsurance um, ideal. Uh, it does have a variety of benefits. Um, so it allows us to retain kind of skin in the game as, as the captive has significant retention. It removes a lot of the market volatility, especially in, in today's market. Uh, and it gives us really, really great control over budgets during the, the five-year horizon. As a mechanism, we can use it to create new risks within the captive and then gain reinsurance. And those risks might not be in the traditional market. So we have kind of used it to incubate new risks in the past. We can benefit from maintaining wider policy cover under the structured reinsurance as it follows the captive wording and it isn't subject to some of the standard market exclusions and particularly they've come to the forefront in, in recent years. We can use it as a mechanism to offset other risks through the relationship with the reinsurer. Uh, and ultimately, um, we can benefit from good claims experience at the end of the period through a, a return of the risk financing elements. In terms of success, we don't actually set KPIs, uh, but we can see from our historical data that the structured reinsurance has created significant premium savings for the group when we compare it to the traditional placement strategy. Given we're now in our fourth iteration over ooh, 16 years, uh, I'd like to say we're, we're fairly confident in the continued use and the benefit that it brings to the, to the group. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Having heard quite a bit about this from you over the last couple of months, it is is really fascinating the, the way that it is structured, and you know, hopeful that uh, this this approach we picked up by more large corporates and and their captives in in the coming years. You you, you touched on a little bit earlier the kind of the original kind of ICI captive back in the nineteen in twenties, um, and I'm fascinated. Often we hear about how captives were born out of Bermuda in the sixties you know, or seventies, and, and that is true to an extent. But there are examples of other captive type structures going back another 40 or so years before that um they, they were very rare things uh, uk captives and, and in the news again which we, which we won't discuss in detail now but how did you and when did you kind of exit and dispose of of those uk captives because it was relatively recently considering their formation so long ago yeah certainly a, a long story um but i guess w when did we pick them up um, we'll start off first um so when Zeneca split off from ICI. We inherited two UK domiciled captives and, and a holding company. Um, as Zeneca then became AstraZeneca and then the company it is today, those captives contained risks that weren't really relevant to the ongoing business. Um, and therefore, from around the mid-1990s through to 2010, a lot of time was spent de-risking those two captives. Um, and at, at the end of the, the de-risking process, they still retained a fair amount of third-party risk. Uh, with, with Solvency 2 on the horizon um, and a desire to continue kind of simplification, we really had a last-ditch attempt to, to simplify the captive structure as the UK isn't really, um, as you know, a, a captive-friendly domicile. Uh, so in 2014, we partnered with, with R&Q uh, on a sale purchase agreement on the oldest captive. Um, that was a really, really worthwhile um, process. Uh, and, and following that sale, 
and the further de-risking on our second UK captive, we re-engaged with RNQ um, a couple of years later and did a second SPA. Um, and that then removed the last uh, 100% kind of UK domiciled captive. However, um, given the nature of the second captive, um, AZRE now acts as a reinsurer to RNQ um, for one oh, of wow. those legacy risks, yeah, that we were unable to novate to AZRE, but we wanted to maintain oversight of the risk management and control on the kind of sizable reserves that were behind it. So, yeah, tackle things in, in many different ways. Yeah, I mean, we, as you probably know, we obviously we have a relationship here with RQ on, on the Global Captive podcast. And so we, Paul Corver and his team have been on numerous times talking about these kinds of transactions. And uh, it's always interesting because, yeah, as ever, no two, tracks and two transactions are the same in terms of that ongoing relationship between the kind of buyer and the original owner of the captive. That can vary as well. So it sounds like you've had, had to come up with multiple solutions over the years and have found a way to make that successful and, and effective. So You've been through that simplification strategy of the captives, but they sound, still sound, of course, incredibly you know, complex to some degree in terms of how they work and how they serve the, the corporate uh, overall, overall strategy. How do you ensure then, Kevin, that the captive is understood and valued by the wider group? And, and how do you ensure it, it stays relevant you know, today and fit for purpose to continue serving those needs? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. Um, I think. I do find that within the group, you know, with, with 70 odd thousand employees, that there's a lot of employee attrition. And in some areas that, you know, did understand the captive, it probably isn't as well understood now as we'd like. So that there is a lot of work to maintain um, the value and, and understanding of the captive. Um, so th there's a number of things that the group do or my, my team. So we maintain a SharePoint site, which really acts as a, as a global gateway to, to all that we do. Uh, and it's a great reference tool for many. We talk about the programs, we talk about the processes, you know, how to raise a claim. There's a, a raft of guidance documents. So we have the SharePoint site. Uh, supporting this, we then partner with key functions across the business and we continually work to get insurance embedded into their own strategies, so obviously to, to help the long-term alignment. Uh, this year, we're making some really strong headway with a, a new global procurement insurance strategy. Uh, we found that, that some recent procurement initi initiatives are kind of hindering the ease of our captive processes and it then creates local headaches. Uh, in some areas like uh, HR and the employee risk benefits, uh, we've opened up our uh, annual rate renewal discussions to a wider HR team. So this then enables regional HR leads and not just the central HR team to be part of that conversation. And, and it helps them understand how we view local exposure, how our view differs to that of the, the local providers. Uh, and I think for many of our HR leads, it's an eye-opening discussion and there is some really good debates. And I think that process uh, and that partnering really does help consoli consolidate the value of the captive within EB. From a, a value proposition, this is currently being tested as we prepare for a major acquisition. Uh, whilst it's too early to confirm, 
our insurance model is expected to bring significant synergies post acquisition close. Uh, and those synergies then have a, a meaningful contribution to the overall group target. Working with legal, uh, last year we pioneered a risk management grant to support an AI initiative that they were working on to reduce costs on insured claims. Um, and over the last eight months, that particular grant has seen a, an ROI of, of just over 200%. So again, it's, it's partnering with the right people. It's trying to get the education. It's doing internal webinars and, and Zoom calls uh, and meetings with appropriate people to make sure that, yeah, we're not forgotten. Yeah, no, that's re really good, really interesting practical steps, which I know a lot of our listeners and, and fellow cap phones can actually take away as, as food for thought for themselves. I love, I love asking that question, particularly of sophisticated cap owners such as yourselves, because I think there is a real trick to that to kind of getting that engagement. It takes hard work, but I think that the, the results are, are tangible, as, as you've just explained there of your last example. Just lastly, Ved, it sounds like you're constantly reviewing, constantly looking for those new opportunities. Is there anything over on the horizon, do you think, for the captive in terms of new lines or, or ways it will work in, in the near future? Yeah. Um, so we tend to act on, on five-year cycles. Uh, and outside of that five-year window, we generally kind of, I'll say tinker with the program, but we don't generally make major changes unless that is that the business makes us aware of an issue which needs addressing. And, and given the potential acquisition I, I just mentioned, um, we're not looking at making any structural changes to our captive as a result of that acquisition. So I think it's fairly robust in, in the process. It is challenging, however, thinking how the wider business may evolve and, and preempting what is required from insurance. Uh, but we do have some really good conversations with other functions in the business and that helps us navigate the way. Um, Whilst maybe not looking at new lines going into the captive, we do continually look at how we can improve our own processes uh, to better get value from the captive. Um, so, you know, just as a, a couple of examples um, from, from last year, um, <clears throat> utilizing DocuSign as, as a means to issue clinical trial certificates um, from the captive, and that was done in a pilot study. Uh, and now the number of countries is, is slowly being expanded. So that's then giving certificates within seconds of a request. Um, also supporting the captive, um, looking at how we can better underwrite data and get consistent data. So we've been doing some work with global real estate um, so we can get estate data. So we can then centrally calculate exposure data uh, and do that consistently um, on behalf of our entities. So I think, you know, I think I've said it already, really, but, you know, with, with 15 risks already flowing through, I'd like to think we've captured all relevant lines of risk. But I guess you never know what's around the next corner. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat. and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, 
undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Thank you to Kevin Steed for a really fascinating insight into the captive evolution and modern day strategy of the AstraZeneca captive. We will be back with Seekers Dan Toll uh, a little later, but I'm really pleased to introduce now friends of the podcast Shadrach Kawaza and Rabani Wahab of London and Capital to talk us through our latest quarterly investments update. This time, Shadrach and Rabani will spend the next 10 minutes concentrating on all things macro macroeconomics and inflation. I have with me, I have the pleasure of um, my colleague here, Rabani Wahab, who works with our fixed income investment desk. Rabani, we are going to talk all things inflation. So I guess my first question would be, what's happening with inflation at the moment? Shadrach, the um, market has market very much been focusing on inflation, as you say, particularly over the last three or four months. And one of the reasons is um, there have been some very high prints specifically from the CPI releases in the US, and that started to get a lot of investors quite worried about exactly how far this rise in inflation is going to go. So where we are right now is that the last uh, published um, CPI in the US was uh, a whopping red big 5% year on year. But then, of course, there's a lots of reasons uh, why it went up so much. One of the reasons is actually from a pure mathematical perspective that uh, this time last year, prices were very, very depressed. So on a straight mathematical comparison, uh, 5% is um, capturing a lot of the disparity between us being a lot more normal compared to us being very abnormal a year ago. Uh, We've had similar rises in the UK and Euro area, but they're nowhere near as large as in the US. So we're around about 2% in the um, Euro and the UK area. So is this just a, you know, reversion back to the mean type story or is something more than that happening in the background? There's some other influencing factors. Uh, Of course, there's been a lot of COVID-related shortages of supplies, which has also created, if you like, some price increases in certain items such as clothing and also uh, the production of semiconductors, uh, which is affecting quite a few industries. So those uh, all have, if you like, individual stories, but then most importantly, in our opinion, not particularly demand-led Uh, inflation and demand-led inflation is something we've uh, been quite absent of uh, in that in that there's not really been the type of worrying type of inflation that would worry investors as well as central banks. That's that's very interesting thank you thank you Rabani for that. Um, So Taking this, the discussion back from a captive's perspective, we know captives will be thinking about managing inflation from a you know claims perspective, you know in, inflation in claims and, and things of that nature and, and payouts that they'll have to make. But should be should captives be worried about inflation from an investment perspective, given what you've said so far? I think you know if we were 
entering into a period of inflation being very sticky and being sticky, we're talking about lasting for best part of a year from now onwards, it would be uh, quite a big item in both their liability and I guess most specifically on their uh, investments part of the balance sheet in that if the uh, Federal Reserve and all the other central banks uh, think that it's time to raise rates and raise rates quickly, that would clearly be um, reflected in much higher bond yields, which of course are very much uh, part of the way that most insurance companies and captives uh, are positioned. And so that would be something which would be um, more of a problem than we actually think it's going to be. So our view is that it's not going to be a long-lasting type of uh, rise in inflation. We think the inflation profile will slowly start to moderate and moderate more towards, if you like, where we were before the pandemic started. And just as a reminder, it is quite easy to forget, we have to remind ourselves from time to time that we were in a very, very stable inflation uh, profile ever since the uh, global financial crisis back in 2008 onwards. And so that's where we think we're going to be heading back towards. And therefore, what we've seen over the last few months is probably unlikely to be repeated and therefore shouldn't be too much of a, uh, a big issue for captive uh, investments in particular. Thanks, Rabani. So um, w- with all that in mind, are there any particular investment strategies that captives should be thinking about or employing, um, given you know, sort of our views on how inflation is going to evolve over time? I think there's going to be specific pockets of uh, inflation which will be very, very focused. Uh, One area in particular would be, if you like, the industrial metals. And industrial metals in particular should respond to some infrastructure spending, uh, the announcement of which we had from the US very recently. And we're likely to get some copycat type of projects in the European area. And that will um, undoubtedly lead to some sort of demand for uh, the industrials. But then, you know, um, a a lot of the uh, asset prices, which would have uh, been, if you like, ideal for a prolonged inflation uh, session, is... um, well, they're not really looking that attractive anymore, especially in light of the view that we don't think that it's going to be, if you like, a long-lasting feature for the global economy. Uh, but then there, there are clearly going to be areas um, and there'll be some uh, type of credits, some type of equities, which will be benefiting from, if you like, the infrastructure type of inflation. But then that's not going to be, if you like, something which is going to be fed through very much to the headline level. On the on the contrary, actually, is that if we start to believe that inflation is going to be heading slowly back towards, if you like, the norm that we were experiencing pre-pandemic, um, I think a lot of the asset classes such as bonds and s- such as uh, a lot of equity type of names will start to revert to maybe a more stable period of inflation and therefore monetary policy going forward. Are there any particular sectors that you think are of interest in, in, in for this discussion? You know, one, one thing which is al- always uh, very interesting to us is uh, the utilities are very much linked to whatever inflation profile is, has been, and most importantly going forward. A lot of the pricing power is very much down to what the underlying CPI prints are. And so that's a sector which we're very much um, in, involved in on the fixed interest side and a um, little bit more on the equity side as well. Um, one of the other things is um, when when we have uh, a more of a stable 
inflation outlook, we tend to get, if you like, a less of a, a premium that a lot of asset classes demand when inflation is maybe not so well behaved. And that's something which will spread across a lot of other sectors. And um, that would be specifically aimed towards uh, the financials as well as uh, a lot of the um, consumer cyclicals. Because if we're not going to be seeing uh, inflation rising too much, that will probably just keep the consumers happy because um, consumers, as we've seen over the last two or three months, actually, they are still quite price sensitive. Um, we, we had a look at, um, for example, auto prices in the US and also in the in Europe going up um, in the months of uh, February and March. And since then, uh, there's been a big fall off in demand because they've gone to levels where consumers just aren't willing to pay. Similar sort of things we're seeing in the US, uh, housing prices uh, have gone into almost record year-on-year year rises, and that's put off the, uh, a, a, a lot of the consumers as well. So consumers are happy when there's a relatively stable uh, inflation profile, and that's quite good for most um, industries. Welcome back to GCP 54, where I am still joined by Dan Toll, president of Seeker. Dan, so it, it seems a long, long time ago now, uh, but it was actually only in May, uh, two months ago from recording, that uh, Washington State self-procurement tax dispute was settled, uh, or essentially settled or come to a conclusion when Governor Jay Inslee signed Senate Bill 5315 into law. We covered it extensively at the time on the podcast and in the GCP Insights magazine. Looking back at that situation now, what kind of are your your overall reflections? And and is it still a concern that possibly a new precedent has been set with regards to this self-procurement tax issue? I'm not sure whether it's a precedent or not, because obviously the way that Washington state has approached this is different than many other states that have truly approached it from a self-procurement tax perspective. But I think my initial reflection is it's bad legislation that helped a few large companies in that state. And I think, unfortunately, it's left more questions than answers, which is, you know, in our industry, we want predictable environments. And there's a lot of different size captives and different types of captives, whether they're located in that state or not located. And it's somewhat unsure about how they're going to be treated. I know of not-for-profit hospitals that are headquartered and located in Washington state, and they don't know whether they have a new tax liability or not. We don't know whether the commissioner is going to go after them or not. And I think, unfortunately, there are going to be issues with companies. It wouldn't surprise me if people potentially fought the insurance commissioner about this. And I think only time will tell. Uh, My hope is that next year or their next legislative session, that they will try to come up with a more comprehensive plan for everyone that's fair. But I'm not overly optimistic that's going to happen. Yeah, I think certainly the next 12 months uh, to see how it's implemented. And and I know that there's still some uncertainty about the kind of reporting that captives will have to do to the commissioner. So I guess we'll start to have some evidence over the next 12 to 18 months as as to how that that plays out. And we'll certainly be keeping an eye on it here at GCP. Uh, The other bit of news, uh, I guess not really surprising, is the IRS announced at the start of July that that micro-captives, which are those captives making the 831B tax election, have once again been re-added 
to the IRS's annual dirty dozen list of tax scams. It took a year off in 2020 for, for some, re- some reason, not, not entirely sure why. Is, is that particularly disappointing to you, Dan, or is it of really little surprise or, or consequence? I don't think there's really any surprise here. Um, the IRS announced what they were planning to do with uh, small captives when they announced their new audit teams going after them. Uh, and I actually believe that announcement's probably more significant than having small captives show back up on the IRS's dirty dozen. I think the IRS is going to be taking this industry and uh, for folks that aren't doing it right, very seriously. And SICA has a long history of advocating for captives of all sizes for, you know, forming for the right reason and, and having them be properly operated. We've had the mantra of do it right or don't do it at all. And that's true of captives of all sizes. And it's bad for business if people are abusing the tax code. And, and I think the IRS is, again, finally going to go after some of these organizations and companies that potentially are doing it wrong. Um, we hope that the IRS doesn't take a broad brush approach to all captives, but time will tell. And and right now it looks like they're going after companies that may indeed have some issues with, uh, you know, how they've operated, but, but only time will tell. But again, in our, in our space, we think the most, the vast majority of companies do do it right. And uh, we want to celebrate them doing it right. And uh, if the IRS is going to take care of some bad actors, I think ultimately that's good for the industry. Yeah, sure. Certainly share that sentiment with you, Dan. I've said numerous times that I'm, I'm not going to shed any tears of on abusive captives getting, you know, pinged rightfully so and, and, and the industry being cleaned up. And, and with this hard market, which we've touched upon, you know, any captives which are closed down as a result of, of being abusive or, or not being done correctly are they're going to they're going to get more than replaced and already have been more than replaced by the kind of huge surge of of new formations which have been driven by the hard insurance market over the past couple of years and i expect we'll we'll see more of those as well um well that wraps up uh gcp 54 thank you to all of our guests kevin steed at astrazeneca shadrach and barney at london and capital and of course dan toll from seeker thank you dan for coming back on Yeah, thank you, Richard. And I I look forward to seeing you in October at our conference, if not before. And I encourage others to to join us there. I think it'll be the event of the year. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And fingers crossed, I will be seeing you in person for the first time in over two years, I think, uh, Dan, at Seeker in Arizona in October. Uh, But in the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.